Well, good morning, Life Point. It's great to be with you this morning, and I'm excited to introduce to you this morning a series that we're going to walk through this summer entitled, The Messiah Has Come, The Christ of God. And in this series, I want us to walk through the first four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. You know, over the last several years, we've kind of been taking different portions of Matthew's gospel and breaking them down for deeper study. And we're going to continue that throughout this summer as we walk through chapters one through four of Matthew's gospel. I want to begin this morning simply by reading chapter one or verse one rather of Matthew chapter one, and then we'll continue with the message. God's word in Matthew 1, one begins... The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know, it was only a couple of months ago that there was a collective gasp that occurred in our world as Prince Harry and his new wife, Meghan Markle announced that they were going to walk away from their royal status and they were going to live a normal life. (laughs) Yes, normal. That's how you say that. I'm pretty sure, right? I mean, if you're like me, you just for a moment wanted to ask, what are you thinking? I mean, didn't you think that when you heard that news? I mean, what are you doing? Actually, what they did in reading articles after that is they walked away from their royal duties. Now, I would like to take a moment to explain what it means to walk away from royal duties to normal life, but actually, I haven't any clue what that means. And so if you can help me with that, maybe you can share at a later time all that that would entail. But what I'm trying to say and what I will say is this, that while they gave up their royal duties to be applauded for their efforts of philanthropy, this is how so many people perceive what Jesus did when he stepped out of heaven and came to earth. That he in some way gave up his divine royalty to come to earth as as a man. But as we read these passages of his genealogy and as we understand the whole teaching of the New Testament, this in fact is not what Jesus did at all in coming to the earth. He didn't give up his divine royalty in order to come to earth. You see, so many perceive that this is what Jesus did. But actually what Jesus did was that he didn't give up anything. Rather, he offered up his divinity. Is there a difference, you say? Sure there is. You see, what Jesus did is he brought the full measure of his divine royalty to bear upon the work that he would do. So Jesus' work is not just simply a work of philanthropy. It is a work of substitutionary atonement. And there's all the difference in the world. Philippians 2 tells us, That Jesus did not consider the fact that he was God as a reason not to serve, but rather to serve. And and the fact that he was God meant that he was the only one who was perfectly able to provide what the holy standard of the Father demanded. You see, Jesus, who is God, 
became man in obedience to the Father to offer himself up as a sacrifice of sin. As I said, this was not the greatest act of philanthropy. This was the most unique act of substitutionary atonement. And it was accomplished by the only one who was perfectly qualified to do it. Throughout this summer, in Matthew chapters 1 through 4, we're going to walk through the series, The Messiah Has Come, The Christ of God. And I know what many of you have probably already wondered in your mind, and I'm not going to embarrass you by asking for a show of hands at this very moment, but you're thinking this, can we actually study these chapters? I mean, it's not even Christmas. Yes, yes, we can, and we should. You see, God didn't send Jesus to legitimize our holiday. No, quite greater, the narrative of Jesus' birth is the revelation of God incarnate. More than an annual legitimacy, this is an eternity-altering truth of God incarnate come to earth for us. And so as we study, I pray that you will receive these chapters with fresh ears to receive the faith that they hold and to believe in the one that they reveal to us. You see, what Matthew does is he introduces Jesus By his genealogy. Now genealogy was highly valued by the Jewish people. And so Matthew who was a Jew writes from a distinctively Jewish Christian perspective. He was a Jew but he had come to faith in Jesus Christ and so he had become a Christian. So he wrote from a Jewish Christian perspective, but he also writes to a Jewish mindset as the principal or predominant aim of his audience. His priority was to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and the promise of God that comes to us through that and how in Jesus, all nations will come to worship him. Both of these friends were earth-shattering, mind-blowing for the Jews of Matthew's day. And might I add, they are for so many in our world today. He presents the generations in order to show God's sovereign hand in his redemptive plan throughout. So he begins with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and, and then he ascends to the greatest king of the nation of Israel, King David. And at the apex, he exalts Jesus as the exclusive Messiah who has come, the Christ of God. God became man to save. Jesus is God's promised Messiah that has come near to save sinners. You see, one distinct feature of Matthew's uh, genealogy, excuse me, is that he arranges the genealogy in three distinct groups of 14 generations each. And so today what I want to do is I want to draw from, for our consideration, what it is that he reveals to us about the Messiah that has come, the Christ of God. And what I want you to see today is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ of God who fulfills every promise from God for life everlasting. Jesus is the Messiah. That word tells us that he is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament prophecy 
And he is the Christ of God who fulfills every promise from God for life everlasting. I want us to see today four revelation of God's salvation from Matthew's genealogy in order to believe for life. Let's go back. And I want to continue reading in verse 2 through the first part of verse 6. And I want us to read the genealogy. Listen to these names. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amenadab. And Amenadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Let's pause there for just a moment. This forms the first group of 14 generations that Matthew provides for us. And this first group begins with Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people. He is the father of the nation of Israel. Now, a Jewish Christian who is speaking to Jews, this is critical because he's telling them that Jesus is the son of Abraham. And he's addressing the people from their very beginning. The one who is the father of their nation is the father of the one he is Revealing, And so just as we see throughout the New Testament how the Jewish leaders claimed Abraham as their father but denied that Jesus was God's son, Matthew is revealing to them that to truly believe in Jesus, or excuse me, to truly believe in Abraham as their father meant to receive Jesus as God's son. You see, Abraham was the father of faith, But Jesus brought something far more important that Abraham could never provide. The first revelation that we see of God's salvation in Matthew's genealogy is simply this. That Jesus came as the founder of salvation from God. The founder of salvation from God. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus serves as the founder of our salvation. That he suffered in temptation and was tempted in every way in which we have been and will be ever tempted. Yet he was without sin. He was made perfect to become the source of our eternal salvation to all who obey him, Hebrews says. Now, let me explain this. Here's a working definition of what it means for Hebrews to say that he was made perfect. A working definition would just simply mean that Jesus was proven as perfect. It doesn't mean that in some way he was made something that he was not already, but rather he was proven to be. You see, what that reminds us is this, that your sin doesn't make you anything, but it reveals who you already are. That we are not just sinful because of our actions, but we are sinful in our nature. And when we sin, It doesn't make us sinners. It reveals that we are sinful. And that's 
why we sin. And that's what was revealed in the life of Jesus by his suffering of temptation yet remaining without sin because when Satan tempted him and when he was tempted in every way as we are yet remained without sin, it's because there was no sinful nature within him. That's who Jesus was. And that's the far more important aspect that he brought that Abraham could not provide for us. You see, Jesus' perfection in defeating sin on the earth reveals that he is holy. Jesus fulfilled God's divine promise of Messiah by coming as the Christ of God, the only one who is worthy to be offered as our sacrifice for sin. Now, Abraham taught us to trust God. Why? Well, just as he told his son Isaac, because God will supply the lamb for the sacrifice. That's what Abraham taught us. Jesus reveals for us that he is the lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And he does that by fulfilling God's divine promise as the perfect spotless lamb who takes away our sin. Friends, this great first revelation tells us that Jesus is the founder of our salvation from God. But let's go back. After Abraham, he brings us to David, and David begins the first of the second group that Matthew will use in Jesus' genealogy. Verse 6, halfway through, begins. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Let's pause there and look at the second group that begins with King David, the greatest king of all of Israel. You see, if anything is on perfect display here, it's the imperfection of the people in this list. Though the greatest king of Israel, he is identified here by his sinful imperfection that stands before us on full display. It tells us that David was the father of Solomon who was given by the wife of Uriah. Did you hear that? Do you remember Uriah? Remember, Uriah was one of David's chief generals and and it was his wife that David took in and abused and impregnated. And then when he found out about that, he had Uriah put in a place so he would be murdered in battle so that his sin would not be found out. And you know what? The whole world was blinded and ignorant of it. But God wasn't. God wasn't. And God dealt with David because of his sin. Friends, I want you to know that when God dealt with David and David repented, it didn't remove him from God's family. Friends, God is not afraid of your sin because he neither tolerates it nor will he be thwarted 
by it. You need to hear this. You need to see this from this list of genealogy. For the glory of God's redemptive plan is that he uses sinful people to bring salvation on the earth. God works through sinful people not to legitimize their sin, not to dismiss their sin, nor to tolerate their sin, but to display the glory and the sovereignty of his redemption in Jesus Christ. The second revelation that we see here about Jesus is that Jesus is the king of a perfect kingdom. That he is the one who conquered sin once for all by the sacrifice of himself. You see, I love the way Matthew presents this. And I think he does it. I don't think. I know Matthew does this intentionally. He is a Jew. He knew who David was. He had heralded all of the accomplishments of David all of his life. And he records them here because David is not his chief concern. Jesus is. He identifies David as king. And king he was because he wants to establish Jesus' royal a a lineage. But Jesus' royalty was not limited to the earth. It was not derived from earthly power or authority, rather from divine authority and divine power from above. But, But the contrast here is so stark. If you go back and read, it tells us that in the spring of the year, when kings go to war, David was found at home lounging. And that phrase alone sets him up to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it tells us that we've just seen that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are tempted, yet was without sin. Why? Because he didn't fall lax upon us like David did. Jesus didn't use nor abuse people for personal pleasure and then kill others to cover up his immorality. Jesus left his home in heaven to fight our war for us. When the time came to fight, Jesus was there for us. And when he left home, he was the king himself who offered up himself to conquer our sin and to rescue us into his kingdom. Friends, King David is God's instrument, not his savior. That points us to the perfect king, Jesus. Jesus is the perfect king of a perfect kingdom. And Jesus was never found by Satan nor by sin's temptation to be lax and susceptible to him. He won his kingdom by facing every temptation, every test, and every trial that came before him with the highest focus and the greatest humility in order to defeat it once for all for you And for me, King Jesus bestows his royalty on all who believe in him for his kingdom's sake. You, Christian, have become a chosen race because of him. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Jesus didn't give up his royalty to come, but rather he came and conquered so that he could bestow his royalty on all who believe in him. And why has he made us this? But Peter says to proclaim the excellencies 
of his glory. Jesus rescues all who believe to live as royal ambassadors of his kingdom. He didn't come to pity us in our situation and do nothing about it. He rescues us from death and brings us to life into his eternal kingdom. Friends, let me remind you that in Jesus Christ, you're not just in a better place. You don't have just a better life because of Jesus. You have life because of Jesus. You were dead in your sin and he made you alive with God. You, Christian, must fight what he calls sin that is found in us every day because he has conquered that sin for you and over you and in you. And we can walk in the light of that truth. You can walk in his light because in him is the light of our life. This is completely revolutionary, friends. It is eternally altering. King Jesus offered up himself to save you to his kingdom and he authorizes you to live here as a citizen of his kingdom in order that we might declare the excellencies and the glories of his kingdom. This is the revelation of genealogy that Matthew provides for us that Jesus is the perfect king of God's eternal kingdom. How powerful such a genealogy is. I know we don't go, let's read something inspirational. Anybody got a book of genealogy? I think I'll go online and just read a list of names. But it's not just about the names, friends. It's about the people because you are not just a name to God. You are a person. The person upon which he sent his son to bestow his love. To bring from death to life and to walk in the light that he provides for you. This is highly important for Matthew's purpose in writing. One commentator said this, that in combining David and Abraham, Matthew is implying that he fulfilled all that would be expected in a Messiah with such connections. Isn't it interesting to us that the Jewish people claimed to be looking for the Messiah, but when he walked in among them, they denied him. And how easy it is for us to shame them for that. And yet to commit the same grievous sin of denying Jesus. Jesus' genealogy reveals not only earthly royalty and highest ancestry. But friends, this may be the most potent. There is an identification with those who have no identity. With those who are of lowly positions in the world. Look at verse 12 with me. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. 
And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The third group covers the period of exile when Israel lost its official status as a nation. But it never lost its status as God's people. You see, when verse 12 begins, it says this, And after the deportation to Babylon. What is it talking about? Well, friends, the kingdom of Israel was conquered and divided. Why? Because they turned their backs on God. They said, you know what? We don't need you, God. We've got all we need here. We've got the brilliance of intellect. We've got the power of our might. We've got the absolute force of our will. We've got the resources of the world. We're good people. We don't need you. And God said, that's not true, but I won't stop loving you. And they were conquered and divided and then ultimately conquered. The kingdom of Israel was divided and the people were dispersed all over to different places. But God's redemptive plan was not lost or thwarted. There's not a kingdom on earth that has ever been or shall ever be that can thwart God's plan for redemption. And the third revelation I want you to see today is this, that Jesus was born from people who had no identity in order to be called the Christ. Did you get that? He was born from people who had no identity to be called. What does Matthew say? The husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, a virgin, we'll see in verse 18 of chapter 1, to be called the Christ. He traces the final group to show how Jesus was born of Mary, a virgin, and given the title of Christ. That's right, friends. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his divine title. It is the title that affirms that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy of Messiah. It's the title that says he is God's son in whom he is well pleased. This is how we know that he is from God and it signifies his office as the anointed Savior. Jesus' genealogy is important that he was descended from Abraham and from David to fulfill God's promise because God's promises are never in vain. They are all fulfilled in Jesus. And friends, this last group is no less significant, though the world held them in that regard. They were a conquered people. They were a dispersed people. They were a people who had their identity on earth stripped, but they were never a people who had been forgotten by God. They lost their status. They never lost their place with God. God's redemption is never dependent on a high status Rather, it comes through a low humility. And it is from people of little power, no authority, and no status in the world that God works his redemptive power and plan through a virgin to bring about the Christ. Matthew's genealogy reveals, number three for us, friends, that Jesus was born of a people who had no identity to be called the Christ. Now, there remains one more revelation that I want to draw from for our time here. And it's brief, but it's potent. The fourth revelation that we find today is simply this, that God's salvation is by faith in Jesus, and there is no earthly status that hinders his saving grace. If you read back through this genealogy, 
there is one thing that stands out among this genealogy that, well, other writers in that day and time would have never used, and that's simply this. There are four women that are used. This is highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. Genealogies were not recorded by the mothers as a, as a standard rule for how they would record the heritage or lineage. But even more so than that, friends, it's not only highly unlikely, it's highly unwelcome. And, and their inclusion almost smites those who would critique this genealogy. And I believe that Matthew does this on purpose. You see, these four women bring with them an endless list of indescribable tragedy, absolute desperation, sinful baggage of illegitimate children, ethnic division and tension, sexual immorality, horrible abuse and corruption, and much, much more. To know their names is to almost shrink back in abhorrence at having to understand their life, and yet Matthew considered them essential for his genealogy. Let me tell you what you don't find in the genealogy. You don't find all the baggage of their past. You find their names as people. Because they were chosen by God to be used in his redemptive plan. Here they are included in the genealogy of the one who is the Christ of God. And here it is their life status that was condemned on earth that is excluded from its inclusion. And they are welcomed by God, not ignored. By God's grace, friends, all are welcomed by faith in Jesus Christ. And Matthew's genealogy reveals to us that none of these things can keep you from God's saving grace. That the depth of the dysfunction of your family cannot keep you from God's saving grace. The depth of your past sins or the, the great number of them cannot keep you from God's saving grace. That the excellency of or the lack of ability or accomplishment of cannot keep you from God's saving grace. Your ethnicity, your nationality, and nor the color of your skin cannot keep you from God's saving grace. Your abuse, your neglect, your forgottenness, and your forsakenness cannot keep you from God's saving grace. The cumulative illegitimacy of your whole stinking life cannot keep you from God's saving grace. There is nothing about you that can keep you from God's saving grace save that you believe in Jesus God's salvation by faith in Jesus is only in him and no earthly status hinders his saving Grace. Friends, Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ of God, who fulfills every promise from God for life everlasting. 
Why not receive God's salvation today in Jesus Christ? Believe. Believe. And receive his life.